need to know the last thing Terry said to me before I got up. Make sure your pants are zipped. There's no pulpit in front of you. The most fundamental human need is to be valued. A whole lot of human behavior can be understood only if we recognize the drive to either feel valuable or convince others that we are. From childhood, we mistakenly begin determining our value by comparing ourselves unwisely to others. Check out 2 Corinthians 10:12 about that. Followers of Jesus will often compare their congregation to others. Often the most important measure of success in a church is how many people come to the meetings. In John 3, it says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. Jesus had stopped traveling around for a while and was remaining in Judea, drawing crowds. At the same time, John was further north, and he too was drawing a crowd. People were coming. Numbers were increasing. And the men in John's church, quote-unquote, liked it. What they didn't like was that a lot of people were choosing to go further south to join Jesus' crowd. Some of John's disciples came to John and said to him, Rabbi, He who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. At this point, John reveals why God selected him to announce Jesus. Unlike anyone else you know, he did not need the applause, recognition, or approval of others to feel valuable. He was not dependent on the opinions of others. He was content to be as invisible as necessary to help people see Jesus. He clearly understood that the ultimate purpose of everyone's life is to point people to Jesus, not to us. It was his life purpose. He begins by stating that everything we have was given to us by God, even crowds. Yes, we worked. Yes, we labored. But in the final analysis, it is God who causes any increase. Always. This is an immutable and universal truth. 1 Corinthians 3 says this, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For this reason, the most appropriate response to any increase is not arrogance, but gratefulness. This life is for the purpose of preparing for Jesus' wedding. We are all his attendants, here to serve and glorify the groom. The most meaningful human life derives its deepest joy from helping someone see Jesus for who he is. Here's how John answered his jealous followers. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. The world isn't waiting breathlessly to hear your voice or mine. 
It'll rejoice to hear the bridegroom's voice, Jesus' voice. John's greatest joy came not from drawing a crowd, but from seeing people see Jesus. The crowds meant nothing. Jesus meant everything. Jesus heard that people had begun comparing he and John. Remember, although he normally continued traveling, Jesus had remained in one place for a while. There were crowds there. When Jesus heard that his crowds were being compared with John's, he should have doubled his advertising budget. He should have hired more ushers. He should have offered better snacks. He should have offered free coffee and Wi-Fi. But what did he do? Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, he left Judea and departed for Galilee. (laughs) He did what? For heaven's sake, why on earth would Jesus walk away from a crowd? Wasn't he here to win followers? If he was here to win the most people possible, then wouldn't it be axiomatic that he would always go where the most people were? The assumption that success is measured by the number of customers is a false assumption. More customers almost always means more money. For Jesus, it would mean more converts. But the assumption that this is success assumes that God's highest purpose for us is to get more. It is not. God's purpose may be to get one. After walking away from the crowds in Judea to go to Galilee, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Our fundamental need to be valued can only be fully met when we finally discover our Creator and learn how he feels about us. Only that truth can dislodge the lie that we're not valuable. Throughout history, humans have devalued each other. If we listen to these voices, we become convinced we're inferior, worth less, if not worthless. Skin color, race, and nationality have often determined who's more valuable than whom. The day Jesus walked through Samaria, it was no different. Jews despised everyone who wasn't Jewish. Samaritans were half Jewish. If you were half one race and half another, you didn't belong anywhere. Samaritans had polluted the Jewish race, making them worse than foreigners. In addition, women were despised, not hated, just considered inferior. And no insecure Jewish man needing to demonstrate his superiority would dignify a woman he didn't know by speaking to her unless he had to. Jewish men made it clear they were far superior to women and Samaritans. And while Jesus rested at a well, a Samaritan woman came to get water. This woman knew her place. She knew her inferiority. She comes to the well, sees a Jewish man sitting there, averts her eyes, and remains silent, trying to be invisible as she sets about to get her water and get out of there. She would expect him to say nothing, wait till she had drawn water, then stop her and drink from her jug, and she would not resist. So she is shocked when he honors her by speaking to her. Jesus knew he would shock her. Imagine, if you can, being treated like dirt your entire life, and one day someone treats you like you are important. 
It would stop you in your tracks, and you wouldn't want to leave. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now picture this woman, shocked, confused, fearful, and hopeful all at once. That she speaks indicates that something is going on inside her. A spirit has already been at work in her, or she would have simply drawn the water for him and gone immediately back to being invisible. If we help someone before the Holy Spirit has them ready, we're wasting our resources. The timing of our help is as critical as the help itself. It is not our job to find someone to help. It is our job to recognize where the Father is working and join him. If he didn't already know, Jesus learned that she was ready simply by speaking to her and seeing her reaction. So instead of becoming invisible again, she asks him to explain his bewildering behavior. Something is very different and she needs to know what it is. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? Jesus couldn't care less about her race or her gender. He cares about what she needs, what she feels, and how she hurts. What she needs is the forgiveness, grace, dignity, and life that God offers humanity through Jesus. So Jesus gives her this answer. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus' answer is as bewildering as his request. It doesn't make sense, and she essentially tells him so, respectfully. She's thinking something like, you're the most confusing person I've ever met. You've only said two sentences, and you made my head explode. The fact that she engages him again and even questions his statement is remarkable. The only way to explain her unusual behavior is that the Holy Spirit has been working in her, making her so hungry for truth that she too is willing to violate all social norms for this amazing encounter. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. I don't think she's being sarcastic when she asks if he's greater than Jacob. She's honestly asking. And she's still thinking of physical water. But Jesus is referring to a thirst in every human being that water alone can't slake. The light is coming on for her, but it's still dim. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I'll give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I'll give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I'll not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She thinks Jesus is speaking of some wonderful labor-saving spring she can access so she won't have to lug a heavy water jug back and forth from home every day. Jesus knows she trusts him already or she wouldn't have kept talking to him and she wouldn't have been so willing to believe he had a special spring to save her from hauling water. So now this Jewish stranger, emphasis on strange, goes deeper. He touches her in a spot that's been painful for years. He invites her to go get her husband. In the space of a few minutes, this Jew has become a friend who wants to meet her Samaritan husband. This just keeps getting more unbelievable. Jesus said to her, 
Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have isn't your husband. What you've said is true. Her head explodes again. She's made another startling discovery. When he was being kind to her, he already knew that this female Samaritan had been rejected by five husbands and was now living with a man, unmarried. Her surprise can't really be measured. She always hides this embarrassing information to avoid rejection. This man knows all of it, yet still treats her like she has value. He doesn't chide her for being divorced. His only comment about her repeated failed marriages was that she'd been truthful. I suspect she's willing to live with a man mostly to avoid the shattering pain of being rejected yet again. Most likely, her expectations are incredibly low. This woman has accepted that she will never be treasured by a man for the simple reason she's not a treasure. It is impossible for me to see Jesus through the eyes of this woman and really feel what she felt to be treated with dignity for the first time in her memory in spite of all that was true about her and by the least likely person on earth, a Jewish man who knew the truth about her. It also dawns on her that he must know God to know what he does about her. So she begins to have a frame of reference in which to understand some of their conversations so far. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Because his kindness has been so wonderful to her, it seems natural to me that she just doesn't want the conversation to end. So I don't think the question she asks next is a burning question, the answer to which she's been longing to find out. It's just an appropriate question to ask someone like Jesus in order to remain a few more minutes with him. So she asks the equivalent of a question we typically ask when we discover someone's a Christian. What church do you go to? She asks what he believes. She doesn't ask in order to challenge him or argue. It's an honest question. And it gives Jesus the opportunity to identify what matters and to extend the essential invitation. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now here comes the invitation. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus looks into her eyes and into her soul and says, God is looking for people like you who will worship him in spirit and truth. God wants her. God is looking for her. She matters to God. I believe at this moment, she believes him. She doesn't even fully realize who he is, although she's on the very precipice of knowing, but she believes Jesus. What does it take for a sinner to be declared righteous by God? Believing him. God set the pattern with Abraham. He told him he'd be the father of nations. Abraham believed him, and God counted his belief as righteousness. Jesus told this woman the gospel in one of its simplest forms. 
The light that's been slowly coming on during this encounter is now burning brightly. And now it's her turn to look intently into Jesus' eyes as she says, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. Now picture her staring at Jesus breathlessly, her heart pounding as she anticipates what he's about to say. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Boom, her world explodes. She now believes that she has just met Messiah and he accepts her. This encounter is so transforming that she can't help herself. Her water errand is forgotten. She can't get back to the village fast enough where she tells everyone she sees to come see this guy. Just then, his disciples came back with their bag of hamburgers from McDonald's. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you want with her? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar, went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. This woman, no doubt despised even by her own people, is so transformed that everyone who knows her recognizes that something unexplainable has happened to her. Her transformation lends her something she has never had, influence. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Nothing was more satisfying to Jesus than doing exactly what the Father sent him to do. Crowds mattered to him only when they mattered to the Father. Numbers never defined Jesus' worth. When the Father wanted just one, Jesus had no problem leaving the crowd to find the one. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? It's encouraging to me to see how obtuse his disciples are. (laughs) Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Don't you say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Sometimes the Father led Jesus to more. Sometimes he led him to one. Addressing a crowd makes us look impressive, but the crowd is made up of individuals who silently question their value. Our Father has known each of those individuals since before he formed us in the womb and treasures each of us. As we speak, he is at work drawing all of us to himself. Only he knows where each one is on our journey towards him. He sends us to move one another along that path by treating people always like they are important because they are. When we see people through his eyes, we will no longer be able to treat some as though they have no value. And we'll notice when he sends a quote-unquote worthless person to us when we've only stopped for a drink of water. 
These important people are everywhere we go. That is the field, Jesus said, is ready to be harvested. The question we should ask our Father throughout our lives is not, where can I get more? Instead, our requests ought to be something like these. Father, would you work in me until I see every person the way you're seeing them? Work in me until I value people rather than judge them. Father, where do you want me and to whom do you want me to be kind when I get there? Aaron? Amen. That was awesome. Uh, it is in the uh, narrative of Scripture in the New Testament when we look at the Gospels that time and time again we find the sinner. And it's in that narrative that we find our neighbor, uh, we find the person we work with, uh, we find maybe even a family member, someone that we find we don't value and we are offended by, and yet Jesus would value tremendously. It's also in that narrative that we sometimes find ourselves, that before God, we are a sinner that feel like we're trying to do all the stuff. So my challenge and my invitation in response to what Jim shared uh, is to value and respond to the things that God has given value to. So that in that narrative, you don't find yourself to be the Pharisee. The one that uh, is offended by the things that God values. And at the same time, uh, the one that uh, does not value the things that, that God does. So that's my invitation to you. Is respond to Jesus this morning. Um, and be a part of his story that he has in your life and in the lives of the people he's put around you. That it's actually in finding someone and the value that Jesus has put on their life, right where they're at, seeing them for where they're at, accepting them, and calling them into invitational relationship with Jesus. That's where the gospel abounds endlessly as you're an extension of the kingdom. Amen? Awesome. Um, the elders, if you want to respond, I'd ask that you uh, stick around for a few minutes um, after. Um, and I do want to take a minute um, just to recognize uh, Jim has had uh, a direct impact on many of your lives or even through uh, an investment he's made in someone else that now has made an investment in your life, uh, that he is uh, a tremendous um, asset to this community, even though he's uh, in Anchorage. And so I just want to say one more time, Jim, so thankful that you were uh, here to share with us. Why don't we give him one more hand? Thank you, Jim. you that tonight, Sunday night, Connection, it's men's chapel, 6th grade and below. Uh